After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Then King Herod heard, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When, the star, um, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Great. Well, um, if, you're, if you're newly with us or are suffering from temporary amnesia, um, what we like to do on a Sunday afternoon is we like to open up bits of the Bible and just talk about them. Think about what it is that God is saying to us through the Bible. We believe that the Bible was inspired by God. We believe that God continues to speak to us as we open the Bible and read it. Uh, and so I thought, it being Christmas, that it might make sense for us to look at one of the Christmas stories uh, and just ha have a bit of a chat about that. So that's where we're going um, for the rest of this afternoon. I'm going to chat about a bit about this passage then. Um, then Amy will come and help us respond to that. Um, what we want to do is we don't just want to hear God speak, but we then want to respond to what he says. Um, there's no point hearing what he says and then being like, well, just crack on as normal. We want to hear what he says, we want to respond to it. So Amy's going to help us do that afterwards. Um, on Monday night, we had our church Christmas sing-along. Um, if you've uh, never been, uh, just to uh, give you a feel for it, we have it in um, the Clarendon, which is a pub on uh, Church Street. We have it in the upstairs room there. And we basically sing every sort of popular Christmas song that exists, pretty much. So whatever it is, we try and we, we get together and we, we all sing these. And at one point in it, someone comes up and just does a little bit of a talk about Grace Church and Christmas and why we love celebrating Christmas at Grace Church. It's one of my uh, favorite nights of the year. I enjoy it every single year uh, that we go. But this year, um, Michael was, was doing the talk. Uh, and Michael was talking um, about some Christmas films on a, a Christmas film channel. Um, I, I have never, ever watched a Christmas film channel. I never intend uh, on watching <laughs> um, a Christmas film channel. And every film he talked about, I had both never heard of and had no desire to watch after he talked about it. Um, so, but it did get me thinking, and it got me thinking about this question, which was the, the question he was really asking is, which is what makes a great Christmas film? Like, what is it that, that makes, like, a, a perfect Christmas film. Uh, and Michael was saying how basically a Christmas film has to have a few central elements to it. Um, I, I'm not going to do it anywhere near the justice that he did it on Monday night, but to briefly summarize, it, it basically needs to have snow, Christmas decorations, and it needs to have a, a, a problem or scenario that will be sorted out by Christmas. Like, that's the essential bit of it, really. The snow is important because um, as Michael was saying, most people aren't really watching them, so it needs to uh, 
kind of um, help the decoration in the room feel authentic. So snow and Christmas decoration is really important. And then some sort of problem that gets resolved by uh, Christmas Day. Uh, and I was thinking that's not just true of trashy Christmas films. Uh, I'm sure the films he talked about were not trashy. But it's not only true of those films. It's also true of like absolute Christmas classics. So, so think about Home Alone, like the, one of the great Christmas films of our time. It is snowy. That there is snow. I'm pretty sure every time he's outside, it's snowy. So there's snow. And inside, there are Christmas decorations everywhere. Uh, and, and there is a problem which needs to be sorted out by Christmas. And unsurprisingly, it is all sorted out by Christmas. Uh, and I guess what, what has happened is those classic Christmas films, It's a Wonderful Life or um, Home Alone, they've pro- provided like a blueprint for what a Christmas film needs to look like. It basically needs to look as much like that whilst being a different film uh, as, is, as is possible. It, uh, but it struck me when I was thinking about that, that one of the great foils for that kind of film is a journey. You see, a journey works really well for all of those elements. So, so take the example of, of Home Alone. Home Alone has a number of elements, but one of the elements is, is a journey. If you, the, the family have ended up, have flown over to Paris without their son, and one of the centrepieces of, of the film is Kate, the, the Macaulay Culkin's mum, um, not actual mum, just in the film, um, trying to get a flight back or get back home to their son who they've left there. And so she gets a flight from Paris into for, uh, somewhere, Pennsylvania? Is that where she goes? She just flies to somewhere. She, she flies somewhere, um, but not quite to Chicago, which is where she needs to get to. And then she tries to get a flight from there to Chicago, but she can't get a flight from there. And of course, is overheard by Gus Polinsky, who is inevitably the lead member of a travelling polka band because they're, they're, the, they're the people you really want in a Christmas film if you're going to do a journey. So she ends up in the back of a van with a polka band who can, can then provide Christmassy music as well into the equation to make it feel even more Christmassy. And of course, what happens? She arrives back on Christmas morning with her family so that, to fit Michael's brief, everything is resolved by Christmas. It's all sorted out. Or, or to take the other, the other great Christmas film, Lord of the Rings. Um, uh, <laughs> Lord of the Rings is, is also a film of a journey, uh, a slightly different journey, a journey from the Shire to Mordor. Um, but again, it provides a great backdrop because you, you have all of the kind of storyline. You have, is it going to get resolved? Is it not going to get resolved? You might argue with me that Lord of the Rings is not a Christmas film. It's not a debate we can have right now. Um, but, but the journey works so well as this, I think for, for maybe three reasons. So the first reason is cosmetic. A journey works really well in a Christmas film because it allows you to have different landscapes, different sceneries. You can, fo- you can go through a snowy wood. You can, you can have snow in different places. You can have different cri- Christmas decorations. So it works really well in a Christmas film, a journey, because you can have the perfect Christmas decoration that is moving along your TV whilst you ignore it. Um, so, so a journey works really well from that point of view. The second reason I think journeys work really well in Christmas films is because journeys played a, a relatively big role in the original nativity story. So you have the journey of... Um, Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. You have the journey of the shepherds there. You have the journey of the wise men. So, so I wonder if in some, at some level we associate journeys with sort of Christmas. So there's kind of a cosmetic, there's a traditional element. And perhaps the, the most significant is the personal element. Lots of us will take, make journeys at Christmas. 
Like, like we will travel to see family or we will be traveling you know, home from work on that last day of Christmas. So, so we kind of associate that traveling somewhere for Christmas, we have kind of fond memories of that ourselves. So it connects with our, with our emotions in that way. So I, I thought that we'd, we'd chat a bit about the, the journey that we just read about, this journey of the, the Magi, the, the wise men to, to visit Jesus. And, and to start with that, I want us to think about why, why do we make journeys? Like, like wh- why do we do it? Why, why do we go anywhere? Think about, think about some of the journeys that you are going to make over the Christmas period. So cast your mind ahead over the next three weeks. Think about some of the journeys you have planned. Some of us will be driving. Some of us will even be flying tomorrow to see family. Um, uh, so, so we'll be driving or, or flying to see family. So that, that might be one of the journeys you have going on over Christmas. Some of us will be um, driving to go to Christmas events, to see Christmas lights or to go and visit Santa or, you know, whatever it is. So, so people, some of you will be doing those kind of journeys. Now, most of those journeys, for most of us, are, you know, relatively short. They may be a few miles, they may be a few hundred miles, um, but they're not going to take days and weeks. But, but probably... Probably the length of the journey is proportionate to how much you, you value the thing that you're going to do. So probably most of us are willing to travel further to see family than we are to go and see some Christmas lights. I mean, <laughs> depends a little bit on your family and, and I suppose on the Christmas lights. If they're really good Christmas lights and you don't really like your family, then you might not. But most of us probably are willing to travel slightly further to see our family than we are to go see some Christmas decorations. Because it's proportionate, isn't it? How, mu- how much do we value this thing? How far are we willing to travel to make it happen? But, but what about really, really long journeys? Like, like what about really long journeys? So what about some of the journeys I've just talked about? Paris to Chicago, or the Shire to Mordor, which I actually have no idea how long it is, but it looks quite long on that map. Well, well I think you'd need some really good reasons to kind of make that kind of level of journey. For example, you might be willing to make a journey in the back of a van with a polka band in it in order to rescue your son you've left home alone and is being attacked by Danny DeVito. You, you might be willing to do that. Like that might seem, seem worth it. Or you might be willing to trek across hundreds of miles to, so that you can throw a ring in a volcano and defeat evil and save the world. Like that, that might be a journey you're willing to make because the payoff's quite big. You know, the, what you're doing is quite valuable. It's probably worth doing. So you're willing to do a, an extreme journey for it. This Christmas, um, we've seen a number of uh, extreme journeys. Um, so uh, like the journey of, uh, there's been a few of these, but I'll just pick one of them. Abdullah al-Sami, who has walked a thousand miles in order to watch Saudi Arabia in the World Cup. There are any number of stories of people who have walked hundreds and thousands of miles in order to watch their team uh, play in the World Cup. We might come back to the motivation for that journey maybe a bit later. But, but what I want us to get our head around is you're willing to make journeys and how hard the journeys are and how long they are is somewhat proportionate to how good the thing you're journeying to is or how how good you perceive it to be. So the question I have when I read this story of the wise men is why on earth did they make such a long, difficult journey? 
Like why, why, were they, why were they doing this? So these, these men have traveled from somewhere in the east to Israel, and, and it was clearly a long journey, like hundreds of miles at, at least, taken over a long period of time. And it's not a straightforward journey because it's quite dangerous. It's dangerous because the world was a dangerous place then, especially when you were journeying between cities. So cities were the safe places, but the roads in between were not safe. So it's dangerous from that point of view. They were away from home, which made it more dangerous. And we read about in this story that Herod, the king of Israel, wasn't mad keen on this idea, which adds a whole other level of danger. So, so it's a long journey. It's quite a difficult journey. It's a dangerous journey. So, so why? Because at the end of it, there is no kids who's home alone. There is no volcano to throw a ring in. It's not even like Nazareth was hosting the World Cup. That like, like, why? Why are they making such a, such a long journey? Well, you read what they do on verse 11. So if you look, cast your mind down to the passage we read before. Verse 11, we read what they do. This is what they do. They travel for weeks, maybe months, maybe even years, to see this child. And when they get there, they bow down, they worship him, they give him some now pretty famous gifts, and then they make the long journey home again. They go home. And it seems, at least to me, on a cursory reading, like a little bit of an anticlimax. We, we travel hundreds of miles, te- uh, extreme danger, to go to find this baby, and then we see him, we worship him, we give him some presents, and we go home. It can, it can read and feel a bit like a bit of an anticlimax. But what I want to suggest, and this is really where we're going to spend the rest of this afternoon, what I want to suggest is that this is anything but an anticlimax. Because... What we're told that they do when they get there was exactly what they had said they intended to do when they get there. So if you look at verse 2, then we are told what their intentions were. We saw the star when it rose and have come to worship him. That was what they wanted to do. That was it. They wanted to travel hundreds of miles for days, weeks, months, who knows how long, for all this hardship so that they could see a baby and worship him. And when they get there, that is precisely what they do. They arrive uh, and they worship there. So here's, here's my basic thesis, my basic idea for, what, for today, which I want you to, if you take kind of one sentence away from everything I'm saying, this is the sentence. So if you're thinking, I'm struggling to stay awake, then just last another tw- 10 seconds and get this sentence. Okay, this is, this is my... general premise for today. The point of Christmas is to worship Jesus, and worshiping Jesus is the point of life. There you go. That's that's my central premise for today. Um, So that's what I'm going to be talking about. That's what I want us to get to. The point of Christmas is to worship Jesus, and worshiping Jesus is the point of life. Right, here, here goes. As you read the Christmas story, you can't help but notice that it's a story of joy. It just is. It's this, it's this effusive, incredibly joyful story. Everybody just seems to be having the best time ever in every bit that you read. You're just constantly reading about people who are overjoyed, who are joyful, who are rejoicing. Mary rejoices. 
The angels rejoice. The shepherds rejoice. Anna and Simeon in the temple when Jesus is brought to them, they rejoice. And we're told here that the wise men are, verse 10, overjoyed. Not, not just a little bit joyful, not just a little bit joyful, overjoyed, overflowing with joy. Uh, and the question is, why? Why are all these people having the best time ever? Because as far as we know, all that they're doing, for most of them, is turning up, looking at a baby, and then going back to shepherding or wise manning or like whatever it is. Like that, that's, that's it. They go, they see a baby, and then they crack on with their lives, and this is the, the best thing ever. This is, this is the thing that fills them with joy. Granted, it wasn't, that wasn't quite the story for Mary, who is also overjoyed. But for most of them, that's it. They meet Jesus, they spend a, a small amount of time with him, and they leave overjoyed. What is it that is bringing such joy to them? Well, I think it's the mere act of seeing someone who is worth worshipping and then responding with that worship, which brings them joy. Why are all these people so overjoyed at going to see Jesus? Because in Jesus, they see someone who is worth worshipping, and then they are able to worship him. Human beings are wired for worship. That, that's what the Bible says. So in Romans 1, we're told that we were created to know and worship God. That, that's like what we were created for. It's, it's part of our makeup. It's who we are. And that's why we are attracted to beauty, to splendor, to strength, to excellence. And that's why when we see those things, when we see beauty and splendor and brilliance, that's why we are drawn to worship. That's what the Bible says. It says human beings, we're, we're built to worship. We're created for worship. But I want to suggest it's not just what the Bible says. So you might be sat here thinking, you know, the Bible is just an old book. I'm not really interested in what that says. It's not just what the Bible says. It's also what we see. It's in part why Abdullah al-Sami traveled so far to watch the World Cup. It's why he was willing to do that. We're drawn to excellence, and we don't just want to enjoy it, we want to worship it. It's hard to see the kind of scenes that you see at major sports events or concerts, and not to think that, that what's going on there is about something a little bit more than just enjoyment. It's hard to look at those scenes and think there isn't an element of worship. Isn't there an element of worship in those? Isn't there something that goes a little bit further than just, I'm enjoying watching this football match or I'm enjoying watching this band, when you see how people respond to those major events? We don't just want to enjoy it, we want to worship it. It's true of sports, of music, of art, of literature, and of romance. Sarah and I have um, recently been watching through the new series of The Crown. Um, I know some people uh, in here have been watching it too. Um, there's this one episode where um, Charles is talking to Camilla uh, on the phone. It, it's, uh, the, the episode entirely revolves around this, con this conversation between them. But at one point, as they're um, whispering sweet nothings into each other's ears over the phone, he says this line. He, he, says, he says, 
I adore you to Camilla. And, I, and I, that line just kind of stuck with me because there's something ex- extreme about it. And maybe it doesn't mean very much. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. But it strikes me that as human beings, we don't just want to like things. We don't even just want to love things. We want to adore them. We want to be devoted to something. We want to worship them. We find joy and satisfaction and a sense of purpose in worship. And the Bible would say that is true because we were created as worshippers. It's who you are. It's part of what it means to be a human being. And so the question, I guess, for for us to think about is, well, what happens if if we're created to worship? What happens when we stop believing in God? Or maybe we do believe in God, but when we stop worshipping him. If, it, if something about our nature is wired to know and worship God, then what happens when we don't do that? that? Uh, there may be many things that could happen as a result of us not doing that. I just want to suggest two potential outcomes. They're not the only ones, but they're the two that I could think of this week. Here's the first. Maybe if we're wired to worship God and we don't do that, maybe we become a little bit less joyful. And maybe that's the outcome. Maybe even, dare I say, a, l- a little bit depressed. Like a, like a dog who can't run, or a sheep which can't be with other sheep. I wonder if human beings who don't worship are ultimately failing to satisfy a deep need that we all have. Worship is the act of making much of something else, something other than us. And so I wonder if we don't worship, if we inevitably turn inwards, we become self-focused, self-lovers. We become enamored with ourselves, proud and self-satisfied. Or maybe, maybe we don't do those things, but we just put all our energy into ourselves, into self-care and self-actualization and personal experiences. But if in the same way as a sheep is in some way created to be around other sheep, we are created to worship something other than ourselves, I wonder if that exercise is just doomed to failure. I wonder if it can never actually achieve what we want it to. Just as a solitary sheep could never be happy, no matter how nice the grass is, I wonder if a non-worshipping human can never be happy no matter how nice a lifestyle we manage to make for ourselves. I might be wrong, you can think about it, but I think that's one potential outcome. If human beings are created to worship God and we're not going to do that, I I wonder if we just become a little less joyful. Because we can't meet a deep need that human beings have. So that's one potential outcome. Here's the second potential outcome. You're probably already there. You find something other than God to worship. Because you need to worship It's who you are. You're drawn to it. You want to worship something. And if you're not going to worship God, you're going to have to find something else. Romans, which is one of the letters in the Bible, says that what what we tended to do when we stopped worshipping God was to worship something created rather than the creator. That's the language of Romans 1. So maybe if we're not going to worship God, we find a person that we can worship. 
Maybe it's our spouse or our parents or children or even celebrities. We find someone, we fixate on them. They become our world to us. To take Charles' words, we, we adore them. Or, or maybe it's not a person, maybe we find something else to worship. A football team, a band, nature, art. Or we do what people have been doing throughout human history and we simply find a substitute God. I'm not going to worship God, so I'll make a different God that I can worship. That's why for the majority of human history and continuing today, most people have some religion which worships some deity. You see, I'm, I'm just suggesting that from casual observation, I'm not a sociologist, but from casual observation, it seems to me like human beings are drawn to worship. And if we're not going to worship God, we'll find something else to worship. Now, the better the thing we worship, the better our experience of worshipping it will be. Because that's the sort of the nature of worship. But the reality is that nothing else, else is as worthy of our worship as God. And therefore, worshipping any other thing other than God will never properly satisfy our need to worship. This is why, when you read the Christmas story, all these people meet Jesus, worship him, and go away full of joy. That's, that's, that's what happens. You can just read it again and again in the Christmas story. I meet Jesus, I worship him, I go away overjoyed. That's what happens. And here's why I think that is. Because for that moment, that moment where they are sat or bowed down or stood around Jesus, seeing him. Just for that moment, they catch the most perfect expression of what it means to worship God. For that moment, as they bow down before Jesus worshipping, they are fully human. They're, they're more human than they've ever been at any other moment in their life. There, in that moment, Everything else feels like not quite what they were created to be when compared to that moment where they can see God in the person of Jesus there in front of them and they can worship him. At that moment, they're fully human, worshipping the God that they were created to worship. Nothing else can compare. Everything else just feels slightly worse than that moment. So, I'll try, and, I'll try and wrap this up. I said to Amy I was going to be short, so I don't know how well I'll do at that. I thought I was going to be short last week, and then I went to put it on the website, and it was 45 minutes, so who knows what's going to happen. Um, but I am going to try and wrap it up now, and I, I don't think it'll take that much longer. Why, why have I taken us on this journey from journeys to worship? Like why, why have I done this? What do I want us to do about it? What are you meant to leave this room thinking about doing? Here's my humble suggestion. We all, I'm assuming every one of us in this room, wants to ha want to have a joyful Christmas. 
And you will do lots of things. Probably over the next two weeks, you will do a whole host of things to help that happen, to help yourself have a joyful Christmas. You will buy delicious foods. Maybe some of you already have. You will take some time off work. You will meet up with friends and family. You will give presents. You'll do loads of things that will help you have a joyful Christmas. And I'm sure they will all help. As we were talking about earlier when different people came up, there's lots of things you can do to help yourself have a joyful Christmas. But, but if you really want to have a joyful Christ- Christmas, here is my suggestion to you. Worship Jesus. This Christmas period, meditate on his goodness. Read the stories about him. Ponder his goodness. Dwell on it. Drink it in. Experience his comfort. Experience his forgiveness. Experience his love for you. Give thanks for his kindness to you. And worship him. Because maybe, if I'm right, in that seemingly anticlimactic exercise, you'll just catch a glimpse of what it means to be the person you were created to be. Perhaps as you allow your gaze to move away from you and your own desires and upwards to the God who made you and loves you, you will catch a glimpse of the transcendent and find a deep joy that had entirely escaped you apart from that. But that's not something I just think I want you to do by yourself. I do want you to do it by yourself. It's also something we do together. If the heart of joy is knowing and worshipping Christ. If being human ultimately means being a worshipper, and if we can only really do that properly if we worship the one God who is worthy of worship, then the most important thing we can do as a church is worship Christ and invite others to worship him with us. Uh, at the start of today, uh, well, at some point today, I don't know quite when it was, we, we, we sang, um, Oh, come all ye faithful. And we'll have sang, if we were singing, these words. O come, let us adore him. And that invitation lies at the very heart of what we're about as a church. A church is not primarily a self-help group. It's not even primarily a support group, although I hope we can support each other within it. It's not, a, it's not a social club, although I hope we enjoy some social time together over Christmas. A church is a group of people who come together to worship Jesus. And as they do that together, they together experience some of what it means to be human. And as we worship Christ, as we adore him, we, we just invite other people to do that with us. Come, come, come join us in worship. Come and adore him with us. And that's what we're about as a church. 
If you're uh, kind of looking into Grace Church, if you're new here, if you're just thinking about Christianity and you're like, well, what is this about? That, that's the invitation. We, we want to be a church that wants to worship Christ, and we invite you to do that with us. That's the invitation. So, so as a church, let, let's do that over this Christmas period. As we go about our weeks, let's worship him. Let's worship him in our obedience to him, in our thankfulness to him. Let's sing songs to him in, in our car on the way to work or in our kitchen while we're doing the washing up. Let, let's sing to him and let's worship him. Let, let's talk about him. Let, let's make the much shorter journeys to join with other Christians at our carol service or on Christmas Day and let's worship him together as his church. Let's sing praises to him and celebrate who he is and all that he's done. Let's read about him and talk to him and praise him. Because maybe, maybe in those seemingly humdrum things, you will experience more of what it means to be human than you will in all of the trees and the presents and the fancy food, which I hope you'll enjoy over Christmas. Maybe in that, in actually worshipping Jesus, you'll find the joy that's talked about so much uh, in these Christmas stories. Let me pray and then Amy's going to help us respond to this.